Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm your host, Glenn Holmstrom, Professor of Art at Newman University. In this podcast, Martha Lucy, Deputy Director for Research, Interpretation, and Education at the Barnes Foundation, discusses the institution's philosophy of art education and its current initiatives with Giannis Chackers an associate professor at Newman University who has used the collection to explore the subject of visual communication with his students. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, I thought we could start um, start at the beginning. I was wondering, Martha, if you could just tell us about Alfred Barnes and how he built his collection and how the, the foundation began and what his, his vision for our education was. Sure. Um, there's a lot in there. <laughs> um, Albert Barnes was um, born in, I think it was 1871, in Philadelphia to a, a relatively poor family. He went to Penn, University of Pennsylvania Med School. He studied chemistry. He developed a, a drug called Argerol, which was a silver nitrate compound. Um, that was used to cure um, infections, and he made his money from that. He was um, a sort of brilliant marketer of this drug. And by, say, 1900, 1905, he was a very wealthy man. And I'm going to just add, he also went to Central High School. Went to Central High School, that's right. That's where my daughter's going next year. (laughs) The second uh, oldest high school in the whole country. Right. So he decided that he, w- he wanted to learn about art, and he really didn't know much about art. And this is one of the things that I love about Barnes, is that he, he had a, a very big ego, and he was a very confident person, but he was also modest enough to admit when he didn't know something. And so he got in touch with his friend, William Glackens, who was, this was in 1911, and at that point... Um, he had gone to Central High School with Blackens. They hadn't spoken in years, and he sent him a telegram and said, I'm interested in learning about modern art and starting to collect. I know you're one of those, you know, artist types. Can you meet me and, you know, let's look at some art together. And so they did. They went to galleries in New York. They looked at mostly modern things. And so the next year, Barnes said, okay, I want to I buy modern art. I don't want to buy blue chip artists. I don't want to buy old masters. I want the stuff that's that's coming out now, the avant-garde stuff. So he sent Glackens to Paris with um, $20,000. <laughs> and, and, and Glackens came back with 33 works, including a postman, a really great uh, postman by Van Gogh, and blue period Picasso, and that was sort of that was the beginning. You think about it like today, that's an absolute steal. Unbelievable. You know? I know. It's, it's, I mean, that he to could go buy through, all that. Yeah, for, I mean, he was getting Picassos for, you know, like $500. And that was really because this is like post war things, right? And where he's shopping mainly. No, and, it's, uh, it's, so the it's actually it's before, it's before the war. war. Um, he does. Yes, he does take advantage of the of post-war market being depressed and, and also the, the stock market crash. Um, he got a lot of stuff for a good deal in the 1930s. But when he started collecting, it was 1912. Oh. So the war hadn't happened. And he, the, and the reason he got these things for such a uh, 
you know, song is, is that they weren't known yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were known, mm-hmm. but not the way they are now. Picasso was, he was one of the first to collect Picasso in America. And Matisse was absolutely, people thought he was crazy as an artist, the way he was painting. And um, so when he was buying these works, people said, they referred to him as the, the madman in Marion because he was collecting the work of these modern artists. Um, and Marion is um, suburbs just outside of Philly for listeners who don't know. Right, where the collection originally was. And so getting to the education part, so he's collecting, collecting, collecting. He builds his collection really quickly, um, you know, from 1912 on. And by 1922, he has a collection of probably 500 paintings, mostly modern French artists, Picasso, Cezanne, Matisse, Renoir. And he decides that he wants to devote his whole collection to education for people, you know, not the elite, but people who normally don't have access to art. He has been spurned by the elite. He uh, had Philadelphia too, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. A lot of it is um, is really personal. I think um, he couldn't. Yeah, the art establishment in Philadelphia didn't take him seriously. I think partly because he was new money, but also because of what he was collecting. Um, and so he he wanted this place. So he chartered the Barnes Foundation in 1922. Had a gallery built. It opened in 1925. He arranged his collection in a very unusual way, which we'll probably talk about. And it was only open to students, not open to the public, only to students who were, you know, very modest means and who were just curious about art. And these students, and he was an instructor himself. Yeah, he was. He was. He taught himself. And and he would... um, you know, sit with students and let them, you know, pick up and handle. Like, yeah. Handle. <laughs> yeah. And, but what was his goal? I, I mean, did he want them to become great artists themselves or did he see it as like a, a course in art appreciation or, mm-hmm. you know, what was sort of, what was his, his educational goals at that at that time when he started this? Yeah, that's a really good question. It wasn't so much about wanting these people to become artists themselves, or even, I mean, it was about art appreciation, but it was also about, it was more about developing critical thinking skills. Um, because when you're, when you're looking at art and you're, and you're deconstructing a, a painting in the way that it holds together, forms and the composition and everything, his idea was that by studying this and understanding it, it not only gave you an appreciation of art, but it gave you these these reasoning skills, these analytical skills that you could then take out into the world and apply when you're not only when you're looking at something like anything, like a you know um, a building, um, a, an urban landscape. It helps you to to see differently when you learn how to see. But also, I think. the the critical thinking skills would help you just problem solve in in any situation. And is that how he talked about it too? That's how he talked about it. That's how he wrote about it. Um, He really, he really believed in it. And we, we still teach 
courses here in his original method for adults. We, we also have courses that are not in the original method, but the original method courses are really focused on looking. And of course, any art appreciation or art history course is going to be focused on looking. But what I mean is that you're not going to be, if you're looking at a, a painting of like an El Greco painting of a saint, you're not going to be talking about the life of the saint, who the saint was, what the court, what the politics were at the, in, mm. in the, at the time that El Greco was painting, any of that historical context. You're going to be focusing on what's in front of you, only what you can see, the lines, the colors, the composition. And by having his students just focus on what was in front of them at that moment, the idea was that it was a very democratic approach to teaching art because it required no prior knowledge hmm. of the student. I think often when I think about the Barnes collection and how I've used it with my students, mm -hmm. is, you know, it's fabulous for an education in, in visual literacy, which is kind of a buzzwordy sort of yeah. uh, term today, but I, I don't imagine that Barnes himself would have ever used that. <laughs> he wouldn't have. Um, you know, use those words, but it's exactly that. And it's in the arrangement, the ensembles that he put together that makes, um, the place so special and so useful as a way to explore visual literacy. So I wonder maybe if you could just briefly tell the audience, you know, if they haven't been here, <laughs> what does it look like when you walk into, um, a gallery at the Barnes as opposed to somewhere else? Yeah, I can do that. And then we should talk about what visual literacy means, because it is a buzzword. And I, I don't know if everybody really, it might be worth kind of talking about what we think that means. Mm -hmm. right? So when you walk into the barns, it is not arranged the way that most museums are arranged. You don't have a, a chronological arrangement of the works of art. You don't have the work separated by medium or by, by nationality. Um, you'll walk into a gallery and see a 17th century Spanish painting with a, you know, 20th century French painting with a blanket chest um, from Pennsylvania Dutch country with a spatula from, I don't know, like a, a piece of metalwork from somewhere else in the world. Sometimes you get Navajo textiles mixed in. Um, all sorts of objects. I mean, it's it's a really eclectic mix of stuff, and it and each of these arrangements. So the whole collection is arranged that way, in, in these eclectic groupings of things that you wouldn't normally think about together. And each of these groupings he called an ensemble. So you can kind of think of them as his own works of art in a way. And he spent, I don't know, days, months, years trying to get these ensembles the way he wanted them. And the relationships, so again, it's not about putting all one culture together. It's the opposite. It's mixing everything together and showing how they relate to each other purely in terms of form. So if you see a, a hinge from uh, Europe on the wall, like an ordinary door hinge, you might look at how the curves on that hinge relate to the curves in a painting by the Renoir mm -hmm. next to it. Yeah, I like that you call them his works of art because yeah. they are elaborate and they they do speak to form i mean they, they create shapes and they create symmetry and they right. create lines and they 
They um, reproduce colors and things that they create a sort of fabulous game, and particularly for for somebody that's new to looking at art at all. Uh, it's got this, this playful quality, mm-hmm. but also very thought-provoking. One thing that strikes me that so one of the first things you see when you come into the when the first room you let into at the barns on your right is Cezanne's card players. Mm-hmm. And I always think of this as a, a really great work to start with, speaking of visual literacy. <laughs> so if we, if we want to improve our visual literacy, and that, that could encompass a number of things. But mm-hmm. the first thing might be just understanding sort of the, the grammar and lexicon of images and right. pictures. That might be step one, the composition and you take Cezanne's card players and you think about various compositional elements and, you know, how does, how does an artist or any image maker, um, focus attention, like move your eye? Mm-hmm. And for that painting, I always think it's really an easy, nice example. It's got this table. It's got a, it's got a drawer with a knob for a handle, mm-hmm. which is the bottom of a circle kind of created by the heads and it focuses your attention right in the beginning. And he's also creating depth right away with that. And you see more depth when you see the guy standing up on the left there. And you can think about the side, the side stuff, like the curtains, the way the curtains continue off beyond the border. So there's no like hard border there, mm-hmm. which invites the viewer into mm-hmm. the painting mm-hmm. and the angle that it's at. You're sitting, you're not standing looking at them down mm-hmm. at the oh, table. Yeah, I never thought about that. You're actually yeah. at their level. So you're mm-hmm. like positioned where that empty chair is, where yeah. there would be a chair, sitting there right with them. And there's a marvelous, so like you can start to appreciate, you know, how, how, how the compositional elements sort of, um, affect the viewer and make the, um, the, the painting work, operate. And then for me, I think the second, the second part of visual literacy is like, what is it saying? You know, what is the interpretive, mm-hmm. the interpretive part, which is a matter of like our, our comprehension. Mm-hmm. Like first, we learn to sound out the words, you know, and then, mm-hmm. um, and then we need to comprehend what it's saying. And I think Barnes is encouraging you to think about those things as individual pieces and as ensembles. Like, what does this wall say? And yes. What does this piece say? And Cezanne's card players, you know, they're saying something um, about the society in which they're created, perhaps. You know, here they are. These are people, ordinary people, in their leisure time, and they're not having fun. Like, right. That's something my students notice. Mm-hmm. Always like, oh, they're hanging out playing cards. And there are certainly other paintings of people in leisure that are, are jovial and they're having mm-hmm. fun, but mm-hmm. these, these guys are somber mm-hmm. and, um, you know, mm-hmm. intent and they're engaged in competition and there's a kind of, of competitiveness, you know. Another third thing that I always think about as a matter of visual literacy is the significance of these images, you know, like what's at stake in under, and understanding them, like mm-hmm. what, it, what does it matter that he's saying something right. about these these people or or the human experience or anything like that? And you you know your mind just keeps rolling and rolling, and so you might with the card players. You know, for me, the thing it, you know, one thing it reminds me of is is my own anxiety, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> actually, and my own how 
how that doesn't leave you in your leisure time. Yes. There's a certain like, you know, um, tension that we, yeah. we all carry, yeah. like yeah. even in the quietest yeah, moments. Yeah, the human condition. <laughs> even in the quiet. So like, um, you know, you can, you can play that game and try to exercise that visual literacy in that way with individual works and with the ensembles too. Well, I got more to say, but well, I think, I think, yeah. um, I, I, your, your, the way that you talked about that painting is, is great. And you clearly spent a lot of time looking at it and you're very visually literate when it comes to talking about that painting and you, you understand how it works. Visual literacy. I don't know when it first was used as a term a couple decades ago. I don't know. It wasn't anything that Barnes used, but he certainly was teaching visual literacy. And I mean, you can think about it as in, in relation to just regular literary, like reading a text, being literate when reading a text. And you referred to that, like understanding the grammar, but also understanding how what's written is trying to tell you something or make meaning or, you know, make you feel a certain way. And we are not savvy enough when it comes to bringing that same understanding to reading images. And so what's at stake, I mean, you can translate this to, I don't know what's at stake in looking at art. It's, I think it's interpreting the paintings, trying to understand um, the historical moment in which they were created. But think about it in relation to just contemporary society and pop culture and all the media and all the images that are out there. It's like you want to know what you're, you want to be able to look critically at the images that you're constantly bombarded with and to say, okay, yes, like this advertiser is like, I see how this is operating visually. I see how it's like trying mm -hmm. to manipulate me and make me feel a certain way. So it's, I mean, I think it can be. Yeah, you can understand how it, how it commands literate. your attention. How, yeah. it, yeah, how it's right. maybe trying to scare us. To yeah, manipulate your emotions. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> For sure. And Barnes is, um, you know, you brought up Picasso in the Blue Period. Like, I don't know, that's a good one to think about color. And uh, a nice, simple, simple way to begin that conversation with students. And they're always thrilled. Because they've heard of Picasso. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and those paintings uh, are so powerful. But yeah, you you bring up an interesting point too. I'm thinking about the Barnes method. You know, it leaves out a lot. It right. leaves out a lot. And you know, what's at stake, I think, is always a useful way to think about mm -hmm. these things when we're thinking about education. Like, what is really at stake? Why should you really care about this, students? It's not just a academic exercise, I hope. But a student who walks into the Barnes, and I suppose any art museum as well, but the Barnes is particularly suited to provoking their thoughts, I think. They'll walk in, and most of my students have never been to the Barnes, and you know, lots of them have never been to any art museum. They'll notice right away that, you know, all the naked people are women. They'll notice right away that you know, except for maybe one or two people in the whole Barnes Foundation, they're all white. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to notice that that Cezanne painting has a little metal, tiny plaque with his name on it. Mm -hmm. But the the wooden pieces and the furniture and the metalwork, they don't have names attached to them. Right. So they start to notice and think about, you know, how this 
how these how these how these these artifacts have been created. You know that they're a matter, class of culture of business. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things feed into the images that we see in the world, and no nothing that you ever encounter is simply like the uh, the product of genius. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a reason that that you see certain works, whether it's art or whether it's like a commercial logo or something, at a particular time and uh, across a particular medium. And and who gets to speak to whom, right. you know, is a really important question. And what about? And those things are always constricted. Who and gets think- to select what works we see who gets to select what works are on the walls in museums I mean, we know who gets to do it it's curators and scholars and directors and that was something but that it's, you know, you it's, know ticked off bonds at the beginning mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but i think it's it's really you know important to bring students and make them aware of the politics of display um, not only at the barns but i mean you could do that in any museum right it's it, everything is always a reflection of i don't know Power structures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and even Barnes's method, you know, which focuses, you know, more on sort of the grammar and lexicon, so so to speak, right. of of an image, also leaves out a lot. It leaves you know? out a lot. It uh, does, and we struggle with this actually at the Barnes as much as we love what he did and the way that the collection is hung and the way that he taught and the philosophy behind it. We still uphold that method we still have classes that use that method but we also want to be able to not just talk about light line color and space we want to be able to talk about um the origins of some of these works and and the the history and you know what was going on at the time that the artist was painting that's all the stuff that barnes kind of left aside it's a very in some ways kind of dehistoricized um, presentation of, of the collection and history is important to understanding art. So we're trying to kind of bring that back in without losing Barnes's original vision and presentation. Yeah, you can get, I think, of uh, well, Mo Digliani is a sort of example. Um, he's got the African sculptures that yeah. Mo Digliani was just kind of copying. Right. And I remember the first time I ever visited the Barnes, the old Barnes in Marion, and I noticed that. And, you know, I, I actually never studied art history, so it was like a real thrill for me. Like, wow. Oh, my God. Look, yeah, look, yeah. look, he's totally stupid. Yes. <laughs> so it was Picasso. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, and it was a real thrill for me, but uh, it was just kind of lucky that I, I noticed that thing over there and I noticed that thing over there. It's not stated. Like, there's right. no... There's no like um, text on a wall somewhere that tells you. Right? Yes. So you can get lucky sometimes in the barns, right? Like if it's real obvious like that, you know, because um, it's really obvious. So anybody will notice that. But a lot of that context, the context of creation is not um, presented, you know. So, it's yeah, not presented. One... It's sometimes suggested, like you say, but there's nothing there's no there's no didactic material in the galleries that help you understand the works. I mean, we do have ways of doing that. We have um, a team of what we call the art team, and they're experts, and they roam around and they they talk to visitors and help interpret the the collection. But a lot of times you're just sort of on your own, and there's no there's no nothing written. 
that you can read on the walls, except for those little plaques telling you the names of the artists. And uh, I think some some people find that really liberating. It's like, oh, no, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I just get to sort of look at this and make my own conclusions. And um, I think, and other people find it frustrating because they want, you know, the, the more traditional museum experience where you, you go in, you read something, you, you kind of have a framework for understanding everything that's in that room. Um, the Barnes doesn't, doesn't really have that. But he must have thought it was important on some level because because he does have different kinds of works from different eras, you know, throughout the, the museum. Yeah, so. and he's trying to show those connections. So I think it, it does work really well in a room where he's got the Modigliani and the Picasso with the African masks because they were definitely looking at them. Um, but in other rooms, you'll see there's one room that has an El Greco next to a Cezanne. You, I don't know if you would normally think of them, of these two artists together, but when you look at them together, you can really see that Cezanne is doing something similar to El Greco in the way that he's dealing with the, the napkin. It's a still life um, and the, the sort of weightiness of the, of the napkin compared to the, the use of light and the El Greco next to it. So, so a big part of what Barnes is trying to do even though some of these relationships feel like they might be arbitrary, is show the continuity of artistic tradition, like through time and throughout the world. It's, and you, um, yesterday when we were talking, you used the word universal. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show that there's like this universal, I'm not sure if I buy it, but this is the idea. There's a universal vocabulary of forms that artists use, whether they are aware of each other's art or not. And you can connect everything by looking for these, this universal vocabulary. (laughs) Yeah. It is a really interesting question. Is there a universal language? And in some ways you can see what he's getting at for sure. But at the same time, I think that hides a lot of what we would help us understand every image, every painting, you know, right. every piece of visual communication we come across, which is is very specific to a, a time and a exactly. culture and a place yeah. and an economic history and a cultural history right. and an aesthetic history. So one of the things I agree totally. One of the things that the one of the problems in the collection is is the presentation of the African art. It's like you said, it's it doesn't have the identifying labels like like the paintings get um they're they're i mean they're beautiful works they're they're in cases he has an incredible collection of african art he was one of the first american collectors to really focus on african art but you don't have any sense that the the priority is so much on the purely formal relationship to the works that are surrounding these these objects that you don't get any sense of like what these objects meant to their original cultures, how they mm-hmm. might have been used. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what that's what I think we're we're talking about when we talk about things getting lost. It's like the focus on form is great, but what else how does that form relate to the original intention of these objects? You know, that's what we're trying to kind of recover. Yeah. From the wondering. research that we're doing on the collection now. Yeah, I was wondering, we probably don't have a ton of time left, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit 
more of the sort of current initiatives um, that are kind of expanding, you know, on Barnes's vision of education. Sure. Well, like I said, we've got this a new a new initiative is is the art team, and um, this is a group of people who are either in grad school for art history or they have PhDs and they are stationed in the galleries and they are ready to talk about the collection in that Barnesian formalist way, but they can also talk about history and social history and the original context for the works. That's been working really well. Our visitors like that. It's a casual conversation. But we also have a very expanded adult education program. So we, you know, since Barnes's time in, in 1925, we've been offering courses for, for adults. We, we still do that. And we've expanded. So we, we still offer courses that are in the original method. I think we offer maybe 20 courses per semester. I say wow. maybe five or six of those are in the original method. Um, but we also have other categories of courses that bring in more contemporary approaches to talking about art. So there's one category of classes that is called Art in Context, Connecting Art to History. And then there's another category of classes where you can come and learn from an artist or from a conservator about materials, how, how works of art are made. You know, we had a whole course about the process of making sculpture. Do you do anything that sort of connects these visual literacy issues to, you know, contemporary modes of communication? Like, mm. So I'm thinking like when I'm walking through with students, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll stop, I say, um, the postman. Um, yeah. And here's a nice little portrait, a very famous one. Mm. <laughs> and but it, it occurs to me that they create portraits every day, constantly. You know, like yes. they're constantly like half of their communication is taking pictures of each other it's and sharing them with each yeah. other. Yeah. And so like, you know, a question to ask them is like, how is this portrait different from, you know, the zillions that you create every day? And of course, there's lots of answers to that question. That's a really good. But, I mean, that's how you, yeah, making it relevant. And um, I mean, we, we try to do that. Uh, we don't have like a sort of an official program that connects the collection to contemporary, I don't know, issues necessarily, but we, I mean, we're always trying to bring that in in our teaching, and we have, we also have, this is something that never happened during Barnes's time, but we have school groups, so we have 11,000 children that come every year and see the collection and learn about the collection, and our our K through 12 team is, is really trying just just exactly what you're saying to to really make those works relevant for these kids. Um, I think that's a yeah. My kids have been <laughs> their schools. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I know you even you guys even pay for the school bus. We do. Well, it's all yeah. We have um, grants that allow us to do that. So yeah, we can a lot of the school district district kids come for free they get transportation it's great you had mentioned purpose you know like you know understanding the intentions of the artist and how that can get lost sometimes and mm -hmm. just looking at the sort of universal language so mm -hmm. to speak but like that's an that's an important question too for every every visual 
artifact that you come across, whether it's you know a social media post or a coffee mug or 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 a Van Gogh painting or mm-hmm. anything else. And I think that you know the the collection at the Barnes, you know, it's eclectic nature and the the simple fact that you can't right away tell what's going on. You yes. know, you just walk in, you're like, why is all this right. crap together on the wall? <laughs> and it's like there's a burlap sack behind it or something. Yeah. Like it's, um, the walls encourages. are just so the walls are um, covered with burlap. Yeah. That's the material. And it it just um, it's so puzzling that it, yes. it encourages everybody, particularly somebody who's coming for the first time, to really go back to those. They can't. You can't always answer them, but the questions come to your mind, and so it's a, a beautiful conversation starter. You Absolutely. know, like because yeah. every every person that walks in there is just going to be like, what were they trying to do with this? What was Barnes trying to do? What was that particular artist over there trying to do? What was that you know craftsman and or I'll tell artist you, trying to do? That, that is exactly why, because it's such a great conversation starter, and because people we see visitors kind of talking to each other and like really trying to figure it out, we decided to do away with our audio tour, which was this the more kind of traditional art historical introduction to the collection, because we found that a lot of visitors were just taking them off because they wanted to talk to each other and try to figure mm-hmm. out what the hell this place was about. So we were like, all right, well, let's really go with this and encourage the, the barns to be, what did you call it before? This fabulous game <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that you can try to play with, with your friends or whoever you're visiting with. And I think too, if you don't know a ton about um, the artists or, or the history of the works or the place, you know, the thing students, the first place their brain goes is to the, the images they know. Right. So they look at a portrait or a self-portrait and, you know, they think of the, you know, the ones they see on their phones that they create and share and view mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the time. And that, you know, that just helps enrich the, the, the visual literacy lesson. I mm-hmm. think. So you can be thinking about, you know, light, line, color, and space um, and 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 how images operate that way, but you pretty quickly, or they pretty quickly, or my students do, bring it back to what they know, you know, mm-hmm. and so then they can really apply. Well, one of the the purposes of the the portrait that you make and share on Instagram is to share news, mm-hmm. right? Like I am here now. Mm-hmm. Hey everybody, look. Here's mm-hmm. my friend Martha at mm-hmm. the concert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And that's different than, you know, Van Gogh painting the postman. It's not like, hey, everybody, I'm here now. But there are things that are... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I would say... But, you a... know, um, but they, if they learn, I don't know, just a tiny bit more, too, like it can provoke that the postman was his friend. Right? Well, you can also... So he's making, he's making a portrait of a friend. You, you do that, too. But it's different. Right, right. <laughs> it's also about constructing identity, Mm. right? It's like, that's what everybody who's taking a selfie. I mean, I have a 14 year old daughter, Mm -hmm. so I'm pretty familiar with this. It's very carefully arranged, you know, because when you, when you, you know, she practices these selfies, she takes a lot and then she picks the one that Mm -hmm. she wants to communicate whatever it is she's trying to communicate about herself. And there's a definite. And that's what Van Gogh's doing too in his. I mean, it's not a selfie, but he is saying he's he's constructing the identity of his sitter. 
mm-hmm. by all of his formal choices, just like you do when you take a selfie. It's like, how, mm-hmm. what, what's the angle that you're going to use? What's the lighting? And there's conventions, too, to that kind of portraiture or your, your selfie. I mean, you never see selfies. They're always close-ups. I mean, there may be a medium shot. Very rarely do you have a long shot where you yeah. see somebody's whole body. They're often at a high angle. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's trends that come and go, like the cut-off half-face mm-hmm. selfie. Um, they're typically um, location-specific. The location may matter as much as the the um, subject, but not always. There are more selfies taken of women than there are of yeah. men, and that could say something about our society. Well, too. there's also the, the the I woke up like this trend. Are you familiar with yeah. this? You know, where it's like you you take a. I think it's probably mostly women, girls. You take a picture of yourself. Like that's supposed to be really natural. Like here mm-hmm. I am in my natural state. Like right when I get out of bed. But of course, some of them not. are probably. But you know that they're yeah. not. They're like they very. Took 50 yeah, they're very carefully <laughs> staged and yeah. You know, but yeah. So there are these there are these um storylines. That's not the right word, but these conventions that you know yes. people reproduce right. and tweak and add to. I mean, just as just as as um artists do that might be exhibited in a place like the barns. Mm-hmm. That might be a good place to end. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, be... Martha and Giannis, thanks for participating in CAA Conversations. Thank you. Thank you.